Welcome to the StoryGrid Editor Roundtable podcast. This is a show dedicated to helping you become a better writer following the StoryGrid method developed by Sean Coyne, an editor with over 25 years experience. My name is Leslie Watts, and I'll be moderating the roundtable today. Joining me shortly are four of my fellow certified StoryGrid editors, Jari Bolander, Valerie Francis, Anne Holly, and Kim Kessler. Each week, we watch a movie from one of the 12 content genres and complete a global Foolscap worksheet, then we discuss it using the six core questions. This week, we're exploring the worldview genre through a science fiction window with the 2014 movie Arrival, screenplay by Eric Heiser and Ted Shang, based on Ted Shang's The Story of Your Life, and directed by Denny Villeneuve. Here's a synopsis adapted from IMDb. When gigantic spaceships touch down in 12 locations around the world, linguistics professor Louise Banks is recruited by the U.S. military to lead an elite team of investigators charged with learning how to communicate with the aliens. In the face of the alien presence, nations teeter on the verge of global war, setting off a race against time for Banks and her crew. Can she decipher the language before world military powers launch an attack? Hoping to unravel the mystery, she takes a chance that could threaten her life and quite possibly all of mankind. Okay, so this is a movie that we all really enjoyed and are looking forward to exploring the six core questions. So Jari, you're going to take us through the global genre. What do we have here? Yeah, so thanks, Leslie. This is a a worldview genre of one of the 12 uh, content genres. And in this particular case, it's a worldview revelation since uh, Louise, who is the main protagonist, goes from ignorance to wisdom. And what we have with these sort of worldview genres is they're internally driven. Uh, So it's all about the protagonist and their hero's journey, which is what uh, Louise is on. And so what one of the things that has to happen is that there has to be some cognitive dissonance, upsets the balance of the main character's life, and requiring some sort of shift in reality. And that's is exactly what happens with uh, Louise. The thing about this that's really wonderful is that this story does not need to be set in a science fiction um, sort of way. And this is a really great example of how the hero Louise saves the day, but also has to make a, a best bad choice with a lot of the information that she knows. She actually, in fact, as you go through the movie, realizes that for the aliens, time is not linear and she can actually predict the future. Um, and this is a real challenge for her because in the end, she realizes internally that she can see the grief and sorrow that she'll have in her life. Um, and this whole story is built around her desire to save the world. But really, this is a lot just a smoke and mirrors story for really what Louise is going through. And in, in this case, it's about her daughter, Hannah, who she knows in the end will die of a rare disease. And this is an awful burden for anyone, I would think, to bear. And this is where you really understand that 
it's all about Louise and her going from ignorance to wisdom in this revelation of what she knows. And I know a lot of people will be listening will be like, well, hey, Arrival's a straight up sci-fi type of movie. And that clearly is the setting. It's actually the reality genre of the five genres of story. Here, we focus primarily on content. That's the 12 content genres. That's where we pick the movies from. But there are four other genres that a story has. And the other ones are structure, time, reality, and style. And so science fiction is part of the reality genre. So that's the world that it's in. And again, this could be in any world. This could be in any setting. It doesn't need to have the science fiction story, but that is a brilliant way to build this up and to really figure out, again, for Louise her revelation that she now can predict the future and the sorrow and grief that she'll have to endure. And we'll talk about that as as we kind of get down to the controlling idea. So this movie is one of my absolute favorites that we've ever done. And so Leslie and I have been doing a lot of work on internal genres for the Fundamental Friday blog posts. And so in all that work, Worldview Revelation has really risen to one of the very top stories for me that I just absolutely love. I find they're so much fun because you don't know that you're in one until the protagonist does. It's the ultimate twist of a story to totally flip everything you know, on its head. So Norman Friedman, who is the father of internal genres, he was the very first person to ever distinguish the internal genres from the external genres. So his definition of revelation stories can be summarized with the following cause and effect statement. When a protagonist with a well-developed will, but lacking in essential facts, experiences doubt about their circumstances, which leads to a revelation of a shocking truth, they can make wise and appropriate decisions. So revelation stories are really about strong characters who are operating, you know, with the best intentions, but they have false knowledge. They're missing this key piece of information that they need. Other worldview genres are more about the character's perspective on the world, but revelation is about the character lacking these essential facts. So they believe what they believe only because they don't know the information that they're missing. And once they find out this information, they can shift to wisdom and choose better suited actions. So while all revelation stories must advance to knowledge, or it's not a revelation, so they start in ignorance and they must move to knowledge, not all revelation stories will advance to wisdom. So for example, in Oedipus, you know, he learns the truth about that he murdered his father and married his mother. And rather than metabolizing it or acting with wisdom, he kind of basically surrenders to cognitive dissonance and he gouges his eyes out. And so he does not move towards wisdom. Another example is in Shutter Island, Leonardo DiCaprio's character, he's been playing a detective this whole time. And then he learns about a a family tragedy that happened in his life and that he's actually delusional. And this entire thing is really a a facade for him to play out to try to deal with this deep-seated mental wound that he has. But in the end, his mind can't maintain it and he slips back into ignorance, masters knowledge and falls back into his delusion. So in Arrival, however, we get to experience this, uh, <laughs> a glorious and meaningful shift to wisdom. So just something to think about if you're looking at creating a revelation story. Excellent. I want to shift from the internal, which is as you say, glorious in this story, but I don't want to give short shrift to the external genre. And I would call this the action-adventure labyrinth plot. So to determine the external value, two of the things we can look at are the life value shift, which here is 
life and death. And then we can also look at what the character wants. Now, Louise wants a few things, but one of the things she really wants is to save the people on the planet Earth. And her curiosity to me is more related to that worldview revelation shift. So although that's a really strong want, I think it's related to her need. Okay, so if we call this an action story, we've got a hero wants to defeat the villain and save the victim. To determine the subgenre, we look at the force of antagonism. So the heptapods seem like they could be at first. You know, we think of these big menacing things in the sky that they would be the villain. But of course, we soon learn that's not their intent at all. The arrival, though, creates a metaphoric labyrinth which is a maze-like edifice. And the actual shell that Louise and Ian explore is a literal labyrinth. And the, the the hero needs to learn to navigate. So I think that the, that labyrinth and that idea that you need to, the hero needs to learn to navigate and save the victims in this maze-like edifice is a great choice for worldview revelation because there is this missing piece that if she only has it, all of this gets a lot easier. So in a way, the true labyrinth is this unknowing, this not knowing how to communicate, not knowing the truth about time and how it flows. Okay, so Die Hard is our labyrinth masterwork, and the alien situation and the shell are the equivalent of Nakatomi Plaza. So who's standing in for Hans Gruber here? I would say that the villain is best embodied by the Chinese general, Shang, but also Captain Marks and the security detail. And then finally, the nameless men in power that Colonel Weber must explain or justify Louise's actions to. My thought about the labyrinth is that the language itself is a labyrinth. It's it's a labyrinthine journey. Uh, they study these circular paths and detail the little nubs and squiggles in this language throughout the entire middle build. So I think it makes a good stand-in for a physical labyrinth like Nakatomi Plaza. That's a great point. I like how you've made it really, really specific because it is a much clearer expression of the labyrinth. And I think I think we have a tendency to see, you know, to try to see any mystery as a potential labyrinth. And I think it needs to be more specific than just any mystery that our characters are navigating. Right. Right. Yes, because there is unknown in every story. Every protagonist is facing some unknown. And the labyrinth is a very specific kind of unknown. Great point. Awesome. Well, since you're talking, how about we cover the beginning hook, middle build, and ending payoff? Well, I will do that. I know we have a whole lot to talk about, so I'm going to keep this as brief as possible. And I will just preface this by saying that I let myself wander between the internal and external genres in defining these act structures so uh, people can weigh in and tell me where I got it wrong. But the beginning hook, when alien spacecraft arrive all over the earth, linguistic scientist Louise Banks is recruited to find a way to communicate with them. But when confronted with actual aliens, she must conquer her terror and overcome the resistance of military minds who want to stop her from doing her job to begin the long project of learning their language. The 
middle build, while a linguistic breakthrough triggers strange visions for Louise, she and Ian must work, Ian is the physicist, she and Ian must work against the clock to understand the heptapods' reasons for coming to Earth in order to keep the world's military forces from starting a war. But when a rogue group of soldiers, the security detail, set off a bomb inside the alien ships, uh, the heptapods prove their goodwill by saving Louise and Ian and not retaliating. Instead, they reveal their whole secret to Louise and then prepare to leave the Earth. The ending payoff, when Louise understands her visions are actually experiences from the future, she must risk her life and Ian's to communicate a critical message to the Chinese general or else bear responsibility for a global war. She must also decide whether to have a child with Ian that she knows will die of a rare disease. So she contacts Shang, General Shang, averts war and agrees to have the child with all the loss and sorrow she knows that that will entail. Oh, yeah. Okay. So <laughs> one of the things I want to mention is that when the internal genre is global, it does feel trickier to me to tr to track the global story through the beginning hook, middle build and ending payoff. So I, I guess I'm validating that point that it feels murkier because we're so used to looking for the external and that and that sometimes the internal, even if it's global, is subtext and written in between the lines. Thank you. I feel so much better. Now. You still you still nailed it, Anne. You still nailed it. I totally agree. Um, one thing we've noticed with studying the internal genres is that when they are global, you know, oftentimes, um, so if you have an internal genre that's really, you know, driving the story, that the external genres sometimes take a backseat, where often if you have an external genre that's driving the story, you'll have the internal genre is very much that front, you know, navigator, front seat, passenger, you know, co-pilot within the story. And oftentimes, because the nature of the global internal genre, you'll often get more than one external genre that really weave together to build this kind of setting and this other structure that the internal genre takes place in, but it is harder to pinpoint because sometimes it's like, oh, we got a little bit of society and we got a little bit of action and we got a little bit of love story. You know, there's those pieces that interplay also that this revelation story can take place. And so I think your five commandments were right on. The other thing I wanted to bring up was the value shifts with that, how they take place and progress through a revelation story, or at least what I have witnessed so far in studying them. So we start out at ignorance and often ignorance masks as sophistication. And then by the end of the beginning hook, we've shifted from, you know, ignorance masks as sophistication to ignorance. Basically, we know that we have, you know, we're on the path of trying to solve something that we don't understand. But we, you know, the thing that we're going to find out is that we think we're trying to solve one thing, but we realize we're actually finding out something completely different. The middle build shifts from this ignorance to knowledge. And often the midpoint plays a big shift where we're actually shifting from ignorance to cognitive dissonance to knowledge by the end of the middle build. So we get the information we need. You know, this is usually a very uh, part of the all is lost moment, realizing this truth that's shocking and somewhat really uncomfortable to try to understand. And then in the ending payoff, 
now this is where the protagonist has the option to move from knowledge to wisdom, which would be the application of this knowledge, or to not be able to deal with it and revert back to cognitive dissonance or even ignorance, massive sophistication. So the progression of values gradually shifts. It's not one that like bounces around a bunch. And it might that might just be true for worldview in general. It's, it is, it's this progression where like a status story or a morality story, they bounce around a lot. You can go from selfishness to some form of sacrifice back down to selfishness. You bounce around all over the place. But with worldview, because we're changing the way someone thinks and the way someone perceives the world, that's a gradual change that moves in an arc or in a line, if that makes sense. It, it's not one of those uh, heartbeat looking up and down kind of things. Great. Okay. So Kim, why don't you take us through the conventions? Okay. So these conventions are things that I found when studying the sixth sense as a masterwork for a worldview revelation plot. And so they're a little different than what we're used to seeing with a regular, I say regular, with other worldview stories. So here's what I found. The protagonist is an expert in their field. So Louise here is an expert linguist translator. She teaches at the university. She's already has this top secret clearance from a previous job where she helped the military translate Farsi. And she's this go-to person. We see this in The Sixth Sense, where Malcolm Crow is the main character. He's an honored child psychologist. He's not just a child psychologist. They open it with him getting an award from the mayor or something. In Shutter Island, Leonardo DiCaprio's character plays a detective. In Oedipus, you know, he's the king. So it's these definitely, they start out with this level where we believe them. You know, it's important to establish this at the beginning because it, it sets up this audience expectation that the protagonist knows what they're doing. We have no reason to doubt them or their abilities. So that's important to set up so that it it moves us through to this moment of shocking revelation. And it also shows why it's ignorance masked as sophistication. They think they know what they're doing because they're experts. A clear goal or want that they're actively pursuing that involves some kind of mystery. So for Louise, it's to communicate with the heptopods and find out you know, where they're from, what they want, why they're here. In the sixth sense, you know, Malcolm wants to help Cole. Oedipus is trying to find out who the king's murderer is. And in Shutter Island, he's trying to solve a missing person's case. So the next convention is that there are clues that tip them off to something is not quite right. So they experience cognitive dissonance and they know that they're missing a key piece of information, but they believe that it relates to their original goal, but they're ignorant to that it relates to themselves in a major way. These are kind of the opposite of red herrings because they're clues that point to the truth, but the protagonist dismisses them or just doesn't fully pursue them because they don't know what they mean. So Louise starts having these visions and memories of her daughter and of course, the wonderful part of this film is that we believe it's the past and that she's experiencing grief, but it's actually the future and it's a child that she does not recognize. So all of these these clues, you know, when she has, there's that moment where um, she looks over, I think Ian's asking her about if she's dreaming in, you know, the heptopod language and, and, she's, and she looks over and she's actually seeing a giant heptopod like sitting in the room with her. So she's kind of having almost like hallucinations. She's sleep deprived, you know, we've got all kinds of things. So she doesn't recognize it for what it is and what's actually happening to her. The next one is a point of no return. The moment when the protagonist knows they can never go back to the way things used to be. So this is the revelation moment, you know, that key event and revelation story where the moment when the protagonist realizes the truth, it's not just a twist. It's a reversal of all of the protagonist believed about themselves and their circumstances. So this should probably be listed as an obligatory scene. 
but it directly ties to the next convention. So we'll just go right to that. So the truth that they get is directly related to the protagonist in a major way. So for Louise, this entire time, she's been experiencing these visions, but she didn't know what they were or what they meant. When she learns that she can see the future, specifically her own future, she realizes that this child is her child. In the sixth sense, you know, it's that Malcolm realizes that he's a ghost. You know, he finally realizes, oh, ghosts are real. Cole can see ghosts. But then ultimately he has to realize that he is a ghost. Oedipus does find out the murderer of the king and he realizes that it's him. And then in Shutter Island, it's he realizes that he does find out the whole missing persons thing, but it's not that she's missing. It's that she's gone. And this whole thing is, you know, he's delusional. So it's very related to the protagonist. It's very personal. Other worldview conventions that we see are the strong mentor figure. This convention is standard for other stories in worldview, but because the protagonist of a revelation story is already pretty sophisticated, it seems less necessary. So the mentor may feel a little more like a sidekick, but in Arrival, we do have um, the heptapods do play mentors um, and Ian Donnelly, the physicist, acts more like a sidekick. Big social problem as subtext. This could be racism, misogyny, class conflict. In Arrival, you know, we have aliens have landed and this leads to a global crisis between nations. So it definitely, it adds to the stakes, to the stakes of why we have to solve this mystery. Um, The next one is shapeshifters as hypocrites. So secondary characters say one thing and do another. So this might not come across exactly the same as we're used to seeing in, say, a world maturation story. But here we do have a couple characters who do shapeshift. So the U.S. military captain who was part of the team, you know, he shifts to violence and they attack the heptapods with the bomb. And then the Chinese general who starts out as suspicious and aggressive, but then in that moment in the climax, he shifts to peace and altruism and he offers his one twelfth of the of the gift to the world. And finally, the win but lose, lose but win, bittersweet ending. So here we have Louise saves the world. She finds love, but she knows the way that it all will end with grief and pain, but she chooses it anyway. Oh, I hope we all have the courage to do that when uh, we're faced with those challenges. And with great stories like this, we have a good model. Thanks, Kim. Valerie, you're going to take us through the obligatory scenes. Absolutely. Now... There are eight or nine of them. And the first thing I want to point out before I go into what specifically they all are, is that many writers, when they're faced with these lists of conventions and obligatory scenes, the natural first step is to create one scene that meets one requirement of the story. And that's nothing wrong with that. That works for thousands and thousands of stories. However, every now and again, you get a writer or a group of writers or a group of storytellers who come together to really up the ante and really innovate obligatory scenes and conventions and storytelling. And I think this is a case where that has happened. While we have officially nine obligatory scenes on our story grid list, the filmmakers here have managed to meet each of those obligations in just three scenes. It's brilliant. Brilliant, brilliant. I I just love this movie. Okay, so the first scene I want to bring your attention to is at approximately 11 minutes into the film, and this is when Colonel Weber arrives in Louise's office to ask her to translate a recording of the aliens. This is the inciting opportunity or or challenge, which is the first obligatory scene that we need, obviously. Within this scene, we have a number of other obligatory scenes coming to life. We have the protagonist denying responsibility to respond. Now, I think the denial here comes in two steps. 
First, we have Louise telling the colonel that it's impossible for her to translate from an audio file and that if he wants her to help, she has to interact with the aliens. Now, Louise isn't denying responsibility to help with the bigger alien issue. She's not saying, no, I won't help you at all, but she's qualifying how she will help. The second part of this is that after Louise lashes out, um, Weber gives her an ultimatum. He says, this is not a negotiation. If I leave you here, your chance is gone. Well, Louise lets him leave, but she gives him advice for evaluating the skill of the next linguist that they talk to. Forced to respond, the protagonist lashes out against the requirement to change their behavior. Again, still in the same scene. So Colonel Weber asks Louise to translate an audio file. Louise says, I can't do it. Her lashing out is is her refusal to do it the way he wants it to be done. Now, it might sound like I'm just repeating myself over and over, but this is what brilliant writing does. It's taking one very small bit of dialogue, one small interaction, and making it serve multiple purposes. And this is the type of stuff that when you watch a movie over and over, or you read a book that you really love over and over, you start to see deeper and deeper meanings. Colonel Weber calls Louise to task for saying that she needs to interact with the aliens. He says that she had no problem translating the Farsi audio that she had done at some point in the past. So how come she can't do this one? Now, Louise's response is professional and succinct. You know, it's not an overt lashing out that you would see in some other genres where she would whip out a sword and say, hell no, I won't go. Uh, That's not what's happening here. What she says is, I'm just telling you what it would take to do this job. So lashing out is a relative term, and it has to be in keeping with the character and the setting. So here the way Louise is lashing out is in totally in keeping with her and her character. Okay, so the next obligatory scene we have is that the protagonist learns what the antagonist's object of desire is. Now, I think there are multiple forces of antagonism in this film. We've got the U.S. government represented by primarily Colonel Weber and Agent Halpern. And of course, we have the the rogue group that uh, Anne mentioned earlier. We also have the Chinese government. And even the language barrier itself becomes a force of antagonism because it's it's a labyrinth. Yes, I totally agree with that. But it's also a force of antagonism because it, they were struggling against it for so long. In saying that, for Louise specifically, as our protagonist, the antagonist is the U.S. government or the military mindset. And she learns, again, in the same scene, 11 minutes into the film, that what they want is a quick answer. They want to be able to present her with a very short clip of an alien recording and ask her to translate it. Her response that it's not as simple as that, and I can't just do, I can't translate something I've never heard of before from a 10-second audio clip, it doesn't work for them. Something else I want to point out here is that That conversation is right on theme with the whole movie, the whole story. And I know, uh, I think Jari is going to talk a little bit more about theme later, so I don't want to steal his thunder. But right there in that conversation, we have the two points of view on what time is and how it's perceived. What is fast? What is slow? 
This whole idea of the antagonist's object of desire is restated over and over again in the film. Uh, just a couple of quick examples. In the helicopter on the way to Montana, Weber tells Louise that Priority One is to find out what the aliens want and where they come from. But really, Priority One is to be able to communicate on a basic level. Another example, after the first communication, when the aliens show the visual sign for their language, Weber says Louise's approach to communicating them will take too long, and she counters that actually her way is faster. Okay, moving on. The protagonist's initial strategy to outwit the antagonists fail. Again, I'm still in the same scene. So Louise is being asked to translate something she's never heard from audio. And if you're paying close attention to what's there, it's clear that Louise is very curious about these aliens and not just what they're trying to communicate, but how they communicate. She asks how many aliens there are, how Weber knows that they're speaking, do they have mouths, and so on. So although she very likely does need to legitimately interact with the aliens to communicate, this can also be seen as an attempt to outwit Weber. Now, outwit might seem like a strong word to use, especially for someone like Louise, who doesn't seem particularly Machiavellian or manipulative in any way. However, Weber picks up on it right away, and he responds with, I know what you're doing, and I'm not taking you to Montana. It's all I can do to keep it from turning into a tourist site for everybody who has a TS clearance. Okay, next one. During an all-is-lost moment, the protagonist realizes they must change their black-and-white view of the world to allow for life's irony. I think Louise's all-is-lost moment comes when the U.S. military pulls up stakes and decides to leave camp. This comes after she's gone and had her solo visit to the alien ship, and she understands the alien language. She goes to Weber, explains that she understands it, and what it does, but Weber won't listen. Now, up to this point, Louise has thought that Weber was on her side and that the Chinese general was the enemy because he was the one who was going to attack the aliens. Well, life's irony is that it's actually the Chinese general who listens to her when her own general, her own colonel, Weber, won't listen. So she changes her tactics and actually calls the Chinese general herself. Next, the action moment is when the protagonist's gifts are expressed as acceptance of an imperfect world. So this one and the next one, to, the next obligatory scene, to me, are one scene. So this one, again, is the action moment is when the protagonist's gifts are expressed as acceptance of an imperfect world. And the next one is the protagonist's loss of innocence is rewarded with a deeper understanding of the universe. So at approximately one hour, 40 minutes into the film, there's a voiceover that expresses Louise's gift. She's got a gift as a linguist, yes, and that's expressed at approximately one hour, 40 minutes, and that's when she cracks the language. She understands that their weapon is actually their language, and when you understand it, you perceive time in a nonlinear way. However, the more interesting gift, I think, especially in an internally driven story, is her spiritual gift. And her gift as a, as a person, not as a linguist, not as a profession, but as an individual. And that is, even though she knows the future and what it holds, she embraces it, both the pain and the pleasure of it. And she even says, despite knowing the journey and where it leads, I embrace it. 
and I welcome every moment of it. So this voiceover not only expresses her personal gift, it demonstrates that her innocence is lost and rewarded. Prior to encountering the aliens, she perceived time in a linear way, as we all do, yesterday, today, tomorrow. Now she understands that time can be perceived differently. There really is no beginning or end. And proof of her understanding of that, or one bit of proof, is that she names her daughter Hannah. And Hannah is a palindrome. It's the same forward and backward. There really is no beginning and no end. Her reward or her gift is that she's learned to embrace every moment that life brings. Ironically, there is no past, there is no present, there is only now. That's what she has learned, and she lives in the now. And Kim has already mentioned that we see in those moments when Hannah is little, Louise is very much soaking up every second. And when she does sort of wander, you really do get the feeling that maybe she's having another vision or or memory or whatever we want to call it. So I just found this whole thing completely fascinating. And I think if I watched it 10 more times, I would get 10 more levels of meaning. It's exceptionally well written. Thanks, Valerie. Okay, so now we're going to move on to the point of view and narrative device. And Jari, you're going to take us through those. Yeah, so this is a classic first person, all from the perspective of Louise. I mean, she's basically in every scene. Louise, her perspective, and Louise watching herself in the forward and backward. The narrative device, again, it's in first person, and it's all Louise's perspective. You get a bunch of flashbacks and dreams. Uh, You get a lot of suspense and misdirection as well because you don't know what the past, present, or future holds. I mean, you don't know kind of where you are until the big reveal at the end. I mean, a lot of the climax of the whole story, I mean, this stuff happens really quick once it's been revealed to you. So it's very well done, even though we've all commented that it just seems to have this snail pace when it comes to the action. You don't mind it. You just are really engrossed in Luis's first person perspective and her world and trying to figure out, well, what the hell is going on? Yeah. And I just want to jump in here and add, when we looked at the film Carrie, I went over the suspense, mystery, and dramatic irony and how it was or wasn't used in that film. But in this story, I think they have used suspense and dramatic irony to create narrative drive in a way that I've never seen before, which is so thrilling to me. (laughs) Total story nerd, right? I mean, who gets excited about this stuff but story nerds? (laughs) So suspense again. We all get excited about it, Valerie. We're all story nerds, Jari. (laughs) (laughs) I love my people. Um, Okay, so suspense is when the audience knows the same amount as the protagonist. Dramatic irony is when the audience knows more than the protagonist. And mystery is when the audience knows less than the protagonist. So here we're in suspense and dramatic irony. So with respect to the aliens, the audience never knows more than Louise. We're totally in suspense the whole time. This forces us, inspires us to constantly ask questions about what's going on in a positive way, not in a confused way, but in a positive way. We're presented with a puzzle. And our natural instinct is to try and solve that puzzle. And because we're trying to solve a puzzle, we're 
completely engaged with what's going on. We're looking for clues. We're, we're trying to make connections. And I don't know about you guys, but I never looked away from the screen for even five seconds. I, they hooked me right at the beginning and I was in for the whole two hours. Now, in terms of Louise's personal story, this gets a little trickier. It may be dramatic irony. And I say may because this whole movie is about time and, and how it's perceived. But looking at the story from a linear way for just a second, the audience is in a state of dramatic irony that we know a little bit more than Louise from most of the story because of the framing piece. At the very beginning, we see Louise with her daughter. So we know she has a daughter. So then we seem to have a flashback. And that's when the aliens arrive. Louise doesn't know she has a daughter then because in linear time, she doesn't actually have a daughter. That doesn't happen until the end, after the whole experience of of the aliens. And she has to actually meet Ian first and all this stuff. So what the writers have done is use this bit of dramatic irony in a way that drives the story forward. It makes us ask more questions, especially when Louise says to the aliens, who is this little girl? It's, it's fascinating. Now, it's really hard to talk about it and use words like flashback in a film that, you know, where the whole point is, according to the aliens, time is not linear. And Louise eventually does understand that she has a daughter and there is no past and there is no future. There is only now. Nonetheless, because we know that it is her daughter, we're in dramatic irony. It adds to the suspense. It adds to the tension. It adds to the intrigue. And this is the way you get readers to turn the page and to recommend your book to other people. This is a film I will completely recommend to other people because it is completely fascinating. And dramatic irony is so hard to do well because if the reader knows more than the protagonist, oftentimes they can see the ending and they put the book down or they stop watching the film before the film's even over. So if you want to study suspense and dramatic irony and how it can really compel the story and move it forward and keep the audience engaged, this is a brilliant film to watch. I just wanted to mention that I love exactly what you're saying, Valerie. Like it goes where we think we're in suspense the whole time about her daughter, like that she knows and we know and all of the stuff and that what when when she goes to university and work at the very beginning, we think that this is taking place after her daughter has already passed. We perceive it in that linear time frame. So we're going along thinking that we're in suspense this whole time. And then we don't realize that narrative irony until in retrospect. And so that moment yeah, there's nothing like it. What other story has done it this way? And if you find another story that does this, please comment on, on Twitter at StoryGridRT because I want to watch it. I mean, doesn't The Sixth Sense do that a little bit where you kind of don't know? Um, no. The, well, The Sixth Sense is where you don't know, but he, he doesn't know either. It's never dramatic irony. It never shifts to dramatic irony. It only right. stays okay. with suspense. So it's still a twist. It's just not dramatic. It doesn't shift back to dramatic irony. Excellent. Thanks, everyone. So now we're going to move on to the objects of desire. In other words, the protagonist's wants and needs. And Jari, you're going to discuss these with us. Yeah. So uh, Louise uh, wants to figure out what the aliens want. And then her need, since it's internally driven, Louise needs to accept the pain and sorrow of life in order to live a life with joy and just knowing what she knows that you know, she can now read the future and she may or may not have free will to change it. She just needs to accept every moment. And that's, again, we see that as she 
goes through towards wisdom and the, the pain that that may cause her, but she definitely needs to realize that. Yeah. So in the wants and needs, so we know that that want, it comes from that external genre, right? So since this is, you know, action labyrinth, she wants to solve the mystery, right? She wants to basically solve the labyrinth, get through the labyrinth so that she can save the victim, which in this case would be all of humanity and the heptopods as well. Uh, and then that need is related to the internal genre. So in this case, since it's revelation, her need is to get this key piece of information, which is that as she's learning this language, she's perceiving time differently. And then I think the need that you mentioned, Jari, about accepting, I mean, that is definitely a need that she has in order to move from knowledge to wisdom. That's exactly the need that she has. As she gains more information, her need is going to shift when she gets that missing piece of information where, oh, I understand now, in order to really move to wisdom, she definitely needs to understand that. Otherwise, she risks ending up like Oedipus, right? Which is not yeah. not a favorable fate totally. on that one. So. <laughs> no, no, not at all. Not at all. Okay, so related to the wants and needs, we have the controlling idea and theme. And Jari, you're going to take us through that. Yeah. So the the baseline controlling idea for a worldview revelation is in the positive side, wisdom and meaning prevail when we learn to express our gifts in a world that we accept as imperfect. On the negative side, it's ignorance or meaninglessness reign when we fail to mature past a black and white view of the world. So in this case, this ends in her obtaining wisdom about the world, which is positive since she expresses her gifts to save the world. Although she's clearly torn by the no, by knowing the future, and this future includes her having a daughter, getting divorced, and unfortunately having her daughter Hannah die. So, when we look at the controlling idea, at least from from my perspective, uh, even when we know the future, our destiny is preordained. Uh, we have no free will to change it, and that wisdom is painful burden to bear. Life is about loss, and we cannot avoid that, even if we know the future. We can't have joy without the loss, and we can't have any kind of meaningful happiness without, unfortunately, the sorrow or the the darkness in the light. If you were to look at the original story we had talked about before, which is the story of your life, a science fiction novella by Ted Chang, and it was first published in 1998. And in in the story, it is narrated by Louise, just like in Arrival in the movie, and. Generally, this it follows the movie follows the story, and when you t- when the author was interviewed, he talked about free will and uh, whether or not you have it. Life is about loss. You will not go through life without loss. You cannot avoid it. And so, even if you knew the future, you know, would you avoid that loss? So, and I think this is why this is such a great movie because as humans. <laughs> We have to deal with loss and sorrow and grief and the challenges and the darkness. And when the demons come, we feel alone and scared. Um, Louise in this movie feels alone and scared. She has nightmares. She has these dreams. Uh, And she's trying to figure out, well, what the hell does this all mean? Um, And at the end, she basically accepts the fact that even though she's going to lose her daughter, that the joy of having her and the life of every moment was so worth it. And I think that's the main thing you kind of get out of this. And although it's painful, painful to watch sometimes, I mean, that's what life's about. And that's why this is such a brilliantly done movie and resonates so well with, with all of us. 
Yeah, it's interesting to look at it through that lens of, you know, the truth, right? That humanity is <laughs> destined, preordained for pain and loss and suffering, right? But that's really what gives us meaning. It's interesting to me that the author of the story really was, you know, saying that you don't have free will, that things are really decided for you and you just go with them. And so what was interesting is the way that it came across to me in the movie is that the controlling idea, it feels much more positive in the way that it feels like Louise actively does choose her future rather than being powerless to change it. Or, or maybe it's that she, maybe, and maybe there's a, I need to uh, have a maturation plot of, for myself here of going through that black and white view of going, is it determinism? Is it free will? And that maybe there's this interesting sweet spot in between the gray of, yeah, she could change it, but she doesn't change. She lets it be what it is. So in that way of not attempting to change it, she chooses it. I'm not sure. I'm not sure how that works. Well, I mean, in, in this particular case, it could just be that she's afraid that if she does change anything, that she won't have the joy. Right. And I think that's really the key, right? Yeah. And, yeah. and I think that's part of the message in this whole thing where it may just be as you said, the black and white of it doesn't matter. It's the gray in between where once we accept the good and the bad of life, and once we are on the journey, then we would not want to change it because it may affect something else. That's what a lot of the struggle, I mean, this is a very philosophical free will versus determinism and all that. And this is actually, again, I can't say enough good things about this (laughs) movie. Uh, it really does showcase that. It's really, really well done. I think there's one thing that it felt like the internal and the external genres kind of come together in this idea that about choosing to be vulnerable and creating connections with one another, because that's really what, you know, Louise figures out and she decides to do with marrying Ian and, you know, having Hannah. And that's also what General Shang does. You know, he chooses to be vulnerable and creates connections with Louise first, and then by sharing his, their information with the rest of the world. And so something about the controlling idea is about choosing connection and choosing vulnerability, which is a theme of humanity and definitely a theme of my own life. So it resonates so strongly. And this story, obviously, is about time and how time is perceived. So I know I've brought it up before, but I think it bears repeating. Steve Pressfield on his website at the Writing Wednesdays blog has a fantastic series all about theme and how it's expressed in every aspect of a story. So the protagonist expresses theme, the antagonist, the title, the inciting incident, climax, supporting characters, and so on. All is an expression of theme. I'll put a link to the first blog in the series. It's from back in May 2016. It's well worth your time to dig out those articles, read them, and apply them to this film because it's an excellent case study in theme and how it permeates every aspect of story. Excellent. Thank you. So now we come to our final question, our bonus question, where we talk about good examples and the things that we can really take away from this particular story on this genre and on other aspects of story. Yeah, so we already talked about how this is a great use of suspense and dramatic irony. We've already talked about Arrival being a case study in theme Also, this film, to me, underscores the importance of understanding story structure and story form, because if the filmmakers didn't have a mastery 
of story form, they would never have been able to pull this story off. It is complicated. It's complex. It uses advanced storytelling techniques, and it's to the benefit of the story. It's a gift to the audience. It's absolutely fantastic. And one other thing I want to throw in, it's not a good example, but it is a fun fact. The guy who plays Captain Marks is Mark O'Brien, and he is actually from my hometown. So I wanted to put a little plug in for him. He's, uh, he's pretty serious in this film, but actually he's hilarious. He's an actor, writer, director, producer, and I've got a link to his Wikipedia page in the show notes because he's worth checking out and keeping an eye on. Just a little plug for my home guy. Excellent. Well, that wraps it up for this week. Great discussion. Thank you, Anne, Jari, Kim, and Valerie for your excellent editorial insights into Arrival. We hope our discussion helps you write a better worldview revelation story. You can find the Foolscap and other materials in the show notes at storygrid.com. And we'd like to invite our listeners in the StoryGrid community to comment on Twitter at StoryGridRT. If you're interested in hiring a certified StoryGrid editor or would like to find out more about what we do, visit storygrid.com slash editing. If you want to connect with one of us directly, links to our websites can be found in the show notes. Well, it's crime next time as we sneak into the 2008 caper comedy, Mad Money. Why not give it a look during the week and follow along with us? Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next week. Music